Welcome to season 12 of the Lynx Golf Podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome you back. Thanks for listening. My name is Al Lunsford. I'm the digital editor at Lynx. And back with me joining and signing on for another season with us. We're very excited to welcome back again our friend Joe Passoff. Joe, thanks for joining me today. Should be a fun conversation, a fun season ahead full of topics that I'm sure we'll figure out exactly what we're talking about for the entire year at some point. But we've got a good good list lined up here in the near future of things to discuss. Um, but welcome back. How's your golf game? Yeah, Al, thank you very much. Uh, I still believe that uh, I'm doing better talking about golf and playing it. But uh, I've had my moments recently. But, you know, it's uh, it's been fun tracking all of the golf progress in the world uh some say live golf could be a a setback but but others look at it as just more golf among the top players for you and me though um it's so much about where we play and um today's topic in particular is one of those man oh man this is wish list golf from start to finish and an abundance of it and one of those conversations that you have, uh, I think the water cooler is cliche, but certainly in, in a 19th hole in a clubhouse, you might have approached this topic and, and had some debate. But today we're talking specifically about the best 36-hole complexes in the world of golf. And, okay, let's set some ground rules here. Let's let's set the, the stage for this topic. Today we're talking specifically about facilities that offer exactly two 18-hole championship layouts. So go ahead and throw out the window uh, those that might have been in contention that have more than 36. Uh, so understand that if we don't mention a place like Bandon Dunes, for instance, uh, or, or anywhere else that has lots of golf to play, more than Pine 36. Pine yeah. You could go go right down that list. Just telling you now, we're not going to be mentioning those places because it's specifically thirty six holes. Um, and Joe, you you had some, like you said, philosophical thoughts on our conversation today. Uh, I could I could break it down in my own words, but I might let you kind of say your piece here about how you think about this topic. Al, if only I remembered what my own words were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can sure no, refresh you. Yeah, I I think really what I what it comes down to when I was thinking about my favorite 36-hole combinations or what I consider objectively the very best, you run into a little thing where you say, uh, okay, do I want both golf courses at the club to be almost equal, almost mirror images of each other so that no matter which one you play you know you're getting the premier experience or do you say i want that second course to be sufficiently different from the first course you know do we call it an a and b course it might be kind of a slap at the b course so if the b is outstanding in its own right because it's slightly easier uh because it's on 
different terrain because it's by a different architect, you know, whatever the reasons, is that better for 36 hole purposes where you have the variety inherent in the experience? I mean, I don't know that I have the answer uh, in in my head, but for me, Al, what it comes back to, as it usually does, is the enticement factor. If I finish one golf course, how much do I want to go back and play that golf course again? And, you know, if a course is pretty similar, the second 18 to the first 18, uh, that probably is a good sign in that regard. By the same token, uh, the other 18, if it's very different or if it's somewhat different, hey, I might like that aspect um, to my club and having a different experience. So I think in the end, it boils down to the quality of that second course itself. The argument is, you know, somewhat subjective and and based on the things that you mentioned when you're talking about the best 36-hole complexes, you could, of course, factor in the history of championships if there have been such a thing at a place. Uh, course rankings, world and and country rankings, even state rankings playing into that decision. And I guess another qualifying factor, like you mentioned, if it's two courses, they can't be, you know, miles from each other. They have to be in the same, same complex, same area. Uh, I think you said you'd allow for a particular one that had a little bit of a drive, but um, we'll see if that creeps into the discussion. Little, little hint at maybe something that might be coming down the pipe. But for a lot of people, you know, the first two courses or complexes we're going to talk about, uh, I would think the conversation begins and in a lot of cases ends when you're talking about the best of the best 36 hole complexes with one of these two places uh i'll let you guess in your head what they might be at least what the second one might be while we go into the first one uh and with that i'm going to give the floor to joe to talk about his his best his personal best 36 hole complex well it's pretty close competition Al, uh, I would say uh, coming right down to, uh, well, it's a great horse race between two thoroughbreds. And the one I picked by a nose is Royal Melbourne in Australia. So, again, not going out on a limb here. Uh, I, I just firmly believe after having played both golf courses at Royal Melbourne several times that uh, the West course practically speaks for itself. Alistair McKenzie, one of the greatest designs on the planet, absolutely beloved by some of the great players and architecture critics out there. And, you know, again, a perennial top 10 in the world golf course in terms of rankings. However, the East course at the club by itself often makes various world top 100 lists because its qualities are are so strong its holes so great in their own right 
I think universally, there's nobody that puts it ahead of the West. But what complicates it a little bit and enhances it in another respect is that they take holes from both courses when the tournament course for Royal Melbourne is made up. So that speaks to the quality of the East course in some respects, too. It's not just one or two holes from the East that make up the composite course. It's six holes from the East. So there's a full third of that golf course that winds up as basically one of the top five courses on the planet. We last saw it in action in a major way during the 2019 President's Cup. And, uh, you know, it was very exciting to see, um, you know, the best in the world, starting with Tiger Woods doing a master class on how to play golf in firm and fast conditions where angles are actually really important. You don't see that too much on the in the professional tours these days. So Royal Melbourne gets my pick um, for the reason that the West course itself is is just phenomenal. Not a single water hazard on it, yet it endlessly enthralling. Um, I, I love what uh, Nick Faldo said to me a long time ago about why he loves the West course. He says he loves the way it plays firm and fast running, uh, the way the bunkering frames and almost intrudes into the putting surface and the brilliance of the bunkering style with the native scrubby look. But I, what I love most is he said, I'm also a fan of the often very wide fairways that reward positioning. And that's something you don't get to see too often because the guys hit it so far that they just take angles out of play for the most part. But at Royal Melbourne, everything's so firm that you've got to allow for that. On the East course, uh, okay, it was not designed by McKenzie per se. He left instructions, including a sketch, but it was built <clears throat> actually by Alex Russell, uh, who did a pretty good job and had the help of superb greenskeepers at Royal Melbourne. Much of the East course at Royal Melbourne is on a little flatter ground and it, the vegetation isn't quite as full, lush and dramatic. However, uh, it's strong enough in its own right, especially after a, a Tom Doak tweak about oh, five, seven years ago um, that fixed one hole that was problematic uh, in terms of a boundary line turned it into a, that was the 15th, turned into kind of a Riviera 10th. And then the 17th and 18th holes, which are used for the composite, the 18th hole in particular, good strong par four that finishes up the composite course. Again, there you go. Um, the East contributes to the greatness of the composite course significantly, but in and of itself is a strong enough course to make the world top 100. And um, because I just absolutely love what the kind of golf that's played at Royal Melbourne and asked for uh, that gets my vote as best of the best for 36. In the conversation that you have with yourself about Royal Melbourne, uh, is it that, like you said, the courses are, are somewhat equal uh, or is it that they share attributes and there is that distinct choice between the two? To me. Yeah, Al, if there's a there's a bit of a blending in that, you know, I don't want to say that Royal Melbourne East is it is 
is West Light. It's not that. It has its own character. Um, and its own character, again, is it, it's not the contours not, aren't quite as good. You know, the bunkering isn't quite as brilliant, but it stands alone with a similar look on similar ground, um, you know, that it, it holds its own uh, as as a walk in the park, as a great championship test. So it's just got a little bit of both working there. They're not dramatically different or or substantially different, as we'll see with some of our other 36-hole candidates. Speaking of which, you may have been wondering the second of the two that we put at the top of this conversation. It's a place we've talked a lot about in the past, uh, so a lot of things you probably heard us say about this place. Uh, but Winged Foot, I think, is the one that you have to put up there in terms of the best of the best 36-hole clubs. Uh, it's East and West Course, 1923 A.W. Tillinghast Designs. It, of course, has that tournament pedigree. Six U.S. Opens hosted the 2020 U.S. Open most recently. Won by Bryson DeChambeau. Has hosted a PGA. A couple of U.S. Women's Opens. A couple of U.S. Amateurs. We we all know this. I think where it maybe is different when you're talking about Royal Melbourne. Uh, to me, the two courses that winged foot while they are similar in in some ways in my experience they were much much different than each other the west obviously long narrow and extremely hard one of the hardest courses i've ever played uh with some of the most interesting green complexes thanks to gill hands restoring both of those courses uh, the East, a little bit friendlier, uh, more of a, I don't know if you would call it a members course, but you could pull some members there and, and you might find that a lot of them have a preference towards the East. Maybe, maybe not openly declaring that they're big East people, but uh, certainly for me, I, I much prefer the East, a little bit more variety. Uh, some streams, a lake that comes into play, uh, while still offering uh, incredible green complexes, and just the feeling of of being at a place like Wingfoot is like nothing I've I've really experienced uh, on on many occasions. Very few occasions I've felt almost like it's an out of body experience on the grounds. Um, Joe, you've had plenty of of time at Wingfoot over the years. Why is it such held in such high regard outside of a lot of the things I just mentioned? Yeah, Al, uh, I I gotta say I agree with everything that you said in terms of distinguishing between the two golf courses and even this preference, if you will, for the East Course, which I know a lot of members have. And uh, even if they don't necessarily want to broadcast that um, for the reasons you outlined. And, you know, I've never been a particularly like <laughs> strong player. You know, I never carried anything close to a scratch handicap, hit the ball, you know, the way a great player does. 
And a great player then would go to the West and relish the challenge, relish the test. I remember once talking to a fellow named Jimmy Wright, who was affiliated at the time with a Florida course called the Concession, really challenging golf course from Jack Nicholas and Tony Jacklin. And Jimmy was a director of golf uh, type um, who, oh, by the way, also happened to finish tied for fourth at the 1969 PGA Championship. And he explained to me when we were talking about greatness in golf courses, he said Wingfoot West was what embodied for him because there were no let-ups. Every hole was a solid, stern test, and good players love that. Okay? That's why Wingfoot West has ranked where it has for all these years. But we shouldn't forget that originally the East was supposed to host the 1929 U.S. Open. And for uh, purposes, again, of uh, logistics and, uh, and, and handling things on the ground, they shifted it to the West Golf Course. And, of course, Bobby Jones, famous putt, West Course is now completely historic. But the East Course, for me, is the more fun golf course of the two. It's the more gettable golf course for all handicaps because it has better change of pace. It's shorter, you know, but it, it has a few holes where, Hey, two good shots by a 10 handicap might be able to put you in good stead. Whereas at, at the West course, you're not going to get away with much. So the East course stands so well by itself. And the best Testament to that is if you're a guest at Wingfoot and you find out you're playing the West instead of the East, there's maybe only one in 10 that's going to be crestfallen, that they're not playing the PGA and the U.S. Open course. Anybody that knows golf says, hey, a day on the East is going to be almost identical in terms of the pleasure we derive from solving its puzzles and enjoying the terrain. After you've played both courses at any any of these places that we're going to talk about it to me it brings up the other conversation you you had 10 rounds to play how do you split them and i think these two that we've just discussed is i don't know how you would say anything different than five and five right down the middle um because there is, is such good variety in each and of course, Wingfoot, the condition from the conditioning to the classic clubhouse, one of the best clubhouses in golf, um, to that pedigree that we discussed, it's it all makes for a, a well-rounded experience that puts it squarely at the top. Then there's no question about that. You know, Al, you just brought up an amazing point in your ten. Uh, scale category is I'm not sure that anybody and I could be wrong but I'm not sure anybody would pick Royal Melbourne East over the West if you ask 10 people or you want to play 10 rounds whereas at Wingfoot I think it's a valid point that for folks that want a little more variety a, a little uh, a little more breathing room so to speak in their round of golf in terms of pacing they might pick the East over the West. Now, as far as which is the better championship golf course, I, I think the West is going to win out. But 
the East has held some really significant tournaments of his own. U.S. Senior Open, the very first one, a couple of U.S. Women's Open. So, uh, you know, make no mistake, I think Wingfoot East is stronger than Royal Melbourne East. But I think Royal Melbourne West is stronger than Wingfoot West. And again, you're talking about strength versus strength, two incredible 36-hole complexes. Yeah, and to be fair, I've never played Royal Melbourne, so it's hard for me to to say definitively uh, anything about that experience. Uh, but I'll take your word for it. Um, okay, now that we've gotten the two two at the top of that mountain, let's get into some of the the ones that creep their way into this conversation as well. Um, we're not ranking these in any particular order, but we think these should be part of this discussion. So, Joe, if you want, um, you know, we can, we can go back and forth or I can, I can let you go on your three that you have next on this list. Uh, I'll follow up after that with some other mentions as well. Um, Fire away. All right, Al. We'll figure it out as we go. Um, but I'll I'll lead because the most delightful 36-hole day that I've experienced is at Sunningdale Golf Club in outside of London. Sunningdale is a very famous old club with two top 100 golf courses in the world, if you will. The old course is one of the three most charming golf courses I have ever played. I'm absolutely enamored with it. I love the whole setting from the clubhouse, some of the famous trees, some of the history associated with Sunningdale, Bobby Jones's famous perfect round there of 66, 33 shots, 33 putts. But of course, Sunningdale being an an inland golf course hasn't hosted any open championships or anything like that. But it's been, you know, a phenomenal golf course for well over 100 years. And and it's just, again, it's just pure magic in the Heathland, beautiful trees, uh, the, the perfect halfway house. It's the perfect walk. Um, and for a guy of my ability, you know, when I'm playing well back in the day, I would break 80. But more often than not, I wouldn't. Sunningdale Old is is near perfection. The new course at Sunningdale has kind of popped in and out, bubbled up here and there with various top 100s. It's generally considered the pure Heathland golf course. There's more open areas of Heath. It's also the tougher golf course, and it's the longer golf course. There's some elevated greens out there. There's some great strategic risk-reward holes. Um, you know, that one is uh, is pure Harry Colt. The old course was Willie Park Jr. And it uh, goes back to 1901, the new 1922. Uh, Harry Colt, who also did some revisions. He was secretary at Sunningdale. Um, so to me, having that combination of, a, of two golf courses they're different enough from each other in look, in playability, strength for low handicappers, variety, uh, 
the delight factor is there on both of them with the old winning out, but um, it it stops just short of my top two, which is Royal Melfort and Wingfoot, because neither one of the golf courses is particularly testing for today's low handicap golfers. And I'm not one of them, but, you know, in terms of keeping up with the times uh, and greatness, you know, it you, you still have to have that as part of the equation. And so for the membership, there are not too many people that, you know, that, that are bothered by that. But if you were host the best players today, uh, you know, again, uh, both both golf courses are perfect for the day, for the time and for today's membership, but not quite long enough to test the best. On my list, the first one I'm, I'm going to talk about is a club I had a chance to visit uh, post also work from Gil Hands, uh, also in the Northeast, and uh, was known as the first contiguous 36-hole design in America, uh, built a year before Winged Foot in Springfield, New Jersey, and that's Baltus Raw Golf Club. Uh, also, two Tillinghast courses, the upper and the lower course. Uh, the lower is the one that has most of the championship recognition. Uh, there have been, though, spread across the two, seven U.S. Opens over the years, a couple of PGA championships and some U.S. amateurs. And in the near future, uh, in fact, next year at the 2023 Women's PGA Championship will be at Baltusrol Lower, uh, as well as the 2029 PGA Championship. It's been announced, so a lot of uh, good chances to see Baltusrol and what's on display there. Like I said, kind of the original dual course club in this conversation, and followed shortly by several others up in that northeastern part of the U.S. There is more differentiation, I would say, between these two courses than, say, a winged foot. The upper playing literally up the uh, Baltusrol Mountain there. Uh, it's, it's not much of a mountain, but it is a, a rather big hillside that you go up. So there's much more elevation change uh, and different terrain to interact with than the lower course, which has good ground movement in its own right um but generally a little bit flatter uh what marks baltusrol though and and makes it such a challenging test is the tightness of the fairways the thickness of the rough uh and really really good greens what gill did in in restoring actually some of the width to the fairways the character of the greens and removing a lot of trees revealing sight lines between holes, I think was really impressive to see in perfect in person. Uh, and that complex will show out, uh, in its major championships that it has coming up. Al, uh, you are, you are right on, man. I'm agreeing with you. This is our first episode of the new season, and I'm in total agreement so far with you. Uh, I had a, a big-time director of a state golf association who was a scratch golfer 
well experienced in USGA competitions as a rules official. And he would play a big tournament at Baltus Roll every year, a two-man team event. And before my first trip to Baltus Roll, he gave me a little rundown on things and said he actually prefers the upper to the lower. And again, this is a scratch golfer, you know, low handicap and, and everything else, but a guy really into architecture as well. And, you know, I, that was in the back of my mind when I went to do my 36-hole day, and I've done several 36-hole days at Baltus Roll, but no means an expert. It's just, oh, my gosh, yeah. I see what's going on here. You know, the lower course is, is easier to accommodate tournaments, big tournaments, uh, because of the terrain and the layout. But if you want variety, if you want um, an interesting set of greens because of the slopes that they're located on, and frankly, memorability, the upper scores very high. So, uh, it's what a nice problem for Baltus Roll members to have and their guests. Again, oh, yeah, you want to play the PGA course, the U.S. Open course, whatever it is, we'll do the lower. And, um, you know, a couple of very famous uh, alterations, too, by Robert Trent Jones Sr. in the early 50s, uh, building the great par three fourth with a with a pond that he famously aced <laughs> after telling the club officials it wasn't it wasn't too hard a hole. So there's all that lore connected. Jack Nicholas winning there, Phil Mickelson winning there. That's pretty overpowering. But if you wanted to compare apples, <laughs> um, I think the apples uh, represented by the upper course could just be a little sweeter. What would you put? I know you have Sunningdale as like a, if it's Royal Melbourne's one, Royal, winged foot, maybe one A. Sunningdale, close second. Where else do you go from there? Well, I've got a couple of other favorites that I think, you know, stand out pretty well for the reasons that we discussed. One of them is uh, is down in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, which is Diamante. And, uh, you know, Cabo is, uh, as we know, we discussed on our Best of Mexico Cabo versus Cancun podcast from last season. Cabo is just blessed with an abundance of fantastic golf courses, great weather, great scenery, and all of that. And a number of 36-hole complexes, too. I mentioned Diamante because the original course there, designed by Davis Love III and, and his team, Brother Mark and Paul Cowley, is just so distinctive. It was so unique. It was Lynx-like, uh, even with Paspalum turf, but it played through and still does these enormous sand dunes just a fabulous golf course i think it's come down a peg or two just because they've had to put up the real estate where they have and we all know it's harder to hide real estate in the desert but that hasn't taken away from the shot values and a lot of the uh, strategic options at the dunes course well the second championship course that they built was tiger woods design first completed design and I was lucky enough to walk the property with Tiger as they were designing it. He, of course, had Bo Welling along for the exercise. And <clears throat> what I marveled at with this golf course, which is called El Cardinal, is 
the restraint that the guys showed in understanding that essentially this is a private club. The Dunes course is stunning, dramatic, but it's really difficult, especially if the wind is up. El Cardinal has arroyos running through it, meaning these desert washes. Um, it's a little further away from the ocean. So you get long views, you get mountain views going the other direction on some of the holes. But Tiger didn't put a lot of forced carries into this, and he could have. It would have made for more drama, but instead he opted for his for playability, which is really important to him. So you might put a green near one of those desert washes, but for the higher handicap that would have trouble carrying them, he has a soft spot for. So at Diamante, you had this legitimate decision on the dunes course, in the dunes, and then El Cardinal, which, again, may have sacrificed some drama uh, that would have placed it a little higher in the rankings for playability. And I think that's a, a really cool way to handle it. Great 36 holes of golf. I got one more, Al, while we're on the topic of me. Okay. All right. That is Monterey Peninsula Country Club. All right. Talk about being in a tough neighborhood. You've got Cypress Point next door. You've got Pebble Beach next door. He even got Spyglass Hill next door. But about 20 years ago, Monterey Peninsula Country Club decided we could do better than what we have. What was built in the 20s and then another course that was added in the early 1960s. They hired Mike Strands, a genius now gone, sadly, succumbed to cancer at a very young age. And he redid the shore course reversed the routing basically and what he could then put 12 holes facing the water six holes away from it put these incredible rock formations uh twisted trees uh, green complexes that were out of an impressionist painting unbelievable well the dunes course there which goes back to seth rayner alistair mckenzie robert hunter had long been considered a terrific golf course part of the Bing Crosby rotation for years, but it too kind of got a little bit tired. Reese Jones came in, did some nice sprucing up, but then they decided to go an even further direction just a couple years ago. And they got Tom Fazio and Fazio's uh, old associates who formed a new firm called Jackson Con. And those guys came in and kind of strancified the dunes course Again, just much stronger aesthetics, enhanced the dunes on the dunes course, created others. So, folks, uh, this is not sacrilege to suggest you could go out to Monterey Peninsula. It's a private 36-hole club and play there and not be disappointed that you didn't play Pebble or Cypress. Bold, bold statement, Joe. Very bold. But... I'll, uh, again, just have to take your word for it because that's not somewhere I've been but seen plenty of pictures of. And, yeah, I think I don't wouldn't find myself disappointed in any way to spend a 36-hole day there on the Monterey Peninsula. Any any course, really, on that part of, uh, on that strip of land in the country is it's almost, 
like it was destined for great golf. Oh, you're starting to sound like old Tom Morris. Very good. <laughs> Been taking notes. Uh, so we've talked in length about some of these places, and I think maybe we both have a couple more that we want to uh, throw out there. Uh, in this conversation, we could probably extend it even further than what we are going to do, but um, let me quickly quickly rattle off some of the ones that uh, should be noted as well. Um, a place that's not more than 10 years old at this point, uh, but ranks in, in some rankings, these are one and two uh, in terms of the top courses in the country in Canada is at Cabot Cape Breton. Uh, so Cabot links 2012 design Ron Whitman and Cabot Cliffs 2015 core Crenshaw. What a lot of people consider to be some of the few uh, but true links courses in North America. Uh, and that's a, a testament to, to what Cabot and Ben Cowan-Dewar and and the design teams uh, from those two groups that I mentioned have been able to do there uh, in Nova Scotia um, from all accounts. And, and I haven't been there, but it's uh, almost like stepping foot in Ireland, staring off those cliffs. The Lynx course, I think is highly noted because it, it is a traditional Lynx. And then the cliffs has, an exceptional exceptional finish uh, in its last four hugging those cliffs. The par 316th is widely photographed and probably what people think of first when they think of Cabot Cape Breton. Uh, and they also have a 10-hole par 3 course there as well. Um, Joe, you, you have know, Al, I, been? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I apologize. I, I want to add about Cabot uh, links, if you sure. will, or yeah, Cabot Cape ahead. Breton. Breton, because there are now a number of Cabot properties. Um, I, For many observers, this would be a top three, 36-hole complex. And there's a par three course, as at a number of other 36 holes that we've mentioned. But for 36 championship holes, the curiosity with Cabot is that the Cliffs course has been so incredibly well regarded in some circles, top 20 in the world. Um, Matt Kuchar, I remember an early visit called it, you know, the Cypress Point, you know, basically equivalent. So that's very high praise and deservedly so. I would imagine I haven't had a chance to see Cabot Cliffs, unfortunately. I did play Cabot Links in the early days, loved it. But I also see that it, it happens with pre-existing courses um, or existing courses, if you will, that when the new guy comes along, the old guy gets knocked down a few extra pegs because maybe it had been overestimated in the first place. Wow. Look at its neighbor. Look at its sibling. And uh, yeah, maybe we had it ranked a little too high because look, we have to compare it to now. So what I would say about Cabot, Cape Breton, is give it a few years. Let's see where Cabot links actually settles and the cliffs we know is going to be a perennial favorite for a long time. So I think in its youth, it's a little too young to judge in a final analysis yet compared to some of these others that we've been talking about. 
Well, and you say give it a few years and in a few years time with the amount of development that Cabot has done, who knows if Cabot Cape Breton will even be still in this 36 whole complex conversation. Um, I don't know how much land they have left to do big 18 hole designs, but um, it seems like they're very active and, you know, you could uh, make a case that the next thing that Cabot Cape Breton should do is, is add another 18 hole design. Their other uh, dream golf property uh, cousins in Bandon Dunes and Sand Valley are certainly doing that. Um, while we're at it, I guess I should mention Sand Valley right now should qualify in this conversation, not much longer because in 2023, the Lido course will be added to the existing Sand Valley and Mammoth Dunes courses. Extremely good and interesting golf, uh, in the middle of Wisconsin. It's one of those places that you drive into and can't believe it exists where it does uh, amongst you know never-ending pine forest in the middle of nowhere seemingly in wisconsin is this dunescape glacial dunescape that they've carved uh three bolitos pretty much finished and then another a fourth course coming sedge valley very soon too so while we can talk about it in the 36 hole conversation, uh, Sand Valley should be there, but again, not much longer. Correct. Yeah. I absolutely love both golf courses at Sand Valley and what David Kidd accomplished with Mammoth Dunes with already an award-winning golf course right on property um, was sensational. Just absolute pure fun, magical, but yep. Uh, it's going to be another 18, then another 18. And uh, of course, they have a 17-hole par-3 course on, on property, the sandbox that Core Crenshaw did, which is a lot of fun, too. Quickly from me as well, um, another place in the Northeast built around the same time as Wingfoot and Baltistrol, set to host the PGA Championship in 2023, Oak Hill Country Club. It's east and west courses, Donald Ross designs, gorgeous clubhouse as well, uh, has a lot of character. Uh, what Andrew Green has done there will be uh, the subject of a lot of discussion as we head into that tournament next year. But just it's just really good golf, and it, it's a welcoming membership. Uh, the green complexes are, you know, as quality as they come, uh, as interesting as they can get, and it's going to be. I don't think won't be any pushover. Uh, for the pros who come and play there as well. Another one with some championship pedigree in Chicago, Olympia Fields is a 36-hole complex of note. Uh, you can ride the rail line right up to that club. Uh, you've got the north and south out the front and back of that clubhouse. And um, I love a good golf bridge. Olympia Fields has some great bridges around the property. Uh, I'm not sure how much that uh, comes into play when you're talking about the greatness of a 36-hole complex, but uh, characteristics, I think, are uh, fun for me to throw in as an extra little detail. Uh, and then I'll let you kind of talk, too, about 
the last one I'll mention Royal Port Rush, maybe not somewhere that a lot of people immediately looked to in this conversation, but uh, the Dunless links and the Valley links, both Harry Colt designs has hosted two British opens on the Dunless, uh, which is the one that's more recognized, but a hidden gem in the Valley links from our understanding. Correct, Joe? Yeah, I've never played the Valley course, a Colt course uh, at Royal Port Rush. I mean, you're so ecstatic to be at Royal Port Rush to play the Dunluce course, um, and, and rightly so, that, uh, you know, again, it's just one of those in your travels, you're like checking off trophy courses, and sometimes you overlook uh, a legitimately excellent golf course. Based on rankings, and reputation, yeah, that that golf course, the the Valley course is a fantastic compliment. I just don't know enough about it, you know, to to put it into you know my my list of favorite thirty sixes. I do have one in Ireland um, that is kind of my hidden gem, my favorite, and that is Ballyliffin Golf Club in County Donegal, and. Uh, Neither golf course has ever really risen into the top 100 per se, but it's a little remote. Uh, They don't host tournaments uh, up in the northwest of Ireland. But, oh, man, just, again, so much fun. You have the old links, which nobody knew about until photographer Matthew Harris discovered it, if you will. Um, I mean, it it was around, but he started to spread the word. And my friend Jim Finnegan in Philadelphia so I started to think about it. Nick Faldo got a look at it and said, oh, my goodness, I would love to, you know, to be involved in doing something here. So some of the wildest fairway contours to be found on any course in Ireland is the old links at Valley Liffin. It looks like a field of moguls from one through 18. And then the new course was built by the great Pat Ruddy, of course, the proprietor at the European club called Glashidi Links. And uh, that is got some American style touches, a few ponds and so forth, but soaring elevations, big high tee boxes playing from dune down to valley. Fantastic 36 hole day. And, um, you know, I've got one coming attraction I want to mention, Al. A couple of weeks, I think I'm going to go see the uh, work that Trip Davis has done on the Riverside course at Atlanta Athletic Club. And, of course, Atlanta Athletic Club is Bobby Jones's club. It He had been at Eastlake when it was known as Atlanta Athletic Club, and then they moved out to the suburbs in the 1960s. The Highlands course, a Trent Jones original with some other architects contributing, including uh, Reese Jones doing uh, updates, has hosted the share of big tournaments there. Jerry Pate's famous five iron in the U.S. Open. Um, we've had, you know, two great PGA championships there with David Toms and Keegan Bradley, but, um, the Riverside course, terrific course in its own right down by the river. And it's hosted a U.S. women's open won by Betsy King among other tournaments. So, um, I'm excited to see that play golf there for the first time. I covered the 2001 PGA championship there. Now I'm going to get the chance to play both courses. And uh, again, as 36-hole golf complexes go with a link to Bobby Jones, I I think that's got a fighting chance to make our list. 
Yeah, last year's women's PGA, too, was there. People may remember that as well. Um, Nelly Corda victory at Atlanta Athletic Club. I'm excited ele- for you. Uh, yeah, elevated her to number one in the world uh, with that? that win. Yeah. Well, unless you have anything other, any other places you want to throw in, I, I think we've covered a good amount of ground here and would love to hear uh, our listeners' thoughts as to what should be in this conversation. Joe, anything else to add there? No, there are so many wonderful 36-hole complexes, especially complexes that you can play two golf courses you know, out my way in Arizona, back in the Carolinas, um, you know, it's a fun debate that you have between one course versus the next. But as far as best of the best, I think we hit it, Al. Very good. Well, before I let you go, Joe, I'm going to lob real quickly, just total change of subjects, a poll question at you. It's an easy one, requires no prep. So the fact that I'm blindsiding you with it uh, shouldn't be a problem, I hope. But quickly, Joe, one topic for you. Headgear on the golf course, headwear. Are you a ball cap man, visor man? What's your what's your headwear style when you're playing golf? Well, Al, in my impressionable youth, I did do visors, and I even did a Hogan cap. But for the last 40 years or so, yeah, I'm a ball cap man. I've been told it might be good to switch to a little more of a floppy bucket, something that protects the back of your neck as well, but it's going to be hard. This old dog is kind of a committed ball cap man. I'd have to say the same. I've always been a ball cap guy. The visor look has never really agreed with me. Um, I've got kind of a smaller dome up there that, uh, it looks a little bit ridiculous when you throw a bucket hat or a visor on it, but um, the ball cap collection it has gotten out of hand. My lovely wife has been uh, good enough to influence me to maybe get rid of some I no longer have use for. Uh, so it's not crazy. My closet's not full of them, but I have a lot of ball caps. It's yeah, it's it's a it's not and it's not a prop. All right. I want to set that ground rule there, but it is when you go in a pro shop and you're thinking about buying something from a club, it's just the easy choice for me because it's a good price point. It's something you're going to wear often. And yeah, but our readers seem to be kind of split. Uh, a lot of, a lot of them like the visor, let the head breathe a little bit. Uh, Many said ball cap, and and several said their dermatologists uh, would be happy that they are choosing to wear the bucket cap now uh, for the sake of protecting their skin. So, uh, quick topic. Uh, I know everyone has their own opinion on that, too. So, uh, let us know any feedback you have from our conversation today. Can't wait for the next one, Joe, where I will surprise you again and just throw you off make you make a split second decision that you know i'll try to make it even more uncomfortable next time for you al i appreciate that keep me on my toes (laughs) all right well thanks again 
Uh, until next time, Joe. Take care, Al.